0: Welcome back to The Journal Feed, my name is Nick Salt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here, our team combs the literature for the best articles so that you don't have to, and then provides expert summaries, no bigger than a spoonful, so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. And if you'd like to be rewarded for all of your time listening to or reading the journal feed, we now offer CME credits through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. Now let's take a quick look ahead at everything we'll be covering. We'll be looking at long-term management of BPPV, more on lights and sirens, dosing of defibrillation in kids, NPO status in children, and cardiac ultrasound at the bedside. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which this week were brought to you by the inspiring Max Hansel, Vivian Leigh, and Clay Smith. And without further ado, the first article for this week was titled Prevention of Benign Paroxysmal Positional Vertigo with Vitamin D Supplementation, a Randomized Trial out of the Journal of Neurology. No doubt we've all heard of BPPV, after all, it's everybody's favorite cause of vertigo. It's benign, and you get to do fun gymnastics with your patients, which actually do help them quite a bit. What happens that causes BPPV is that you have these tiny otoconia in your ear, which are calcium crystals which make the otolithic membrane heavier than the surrounding fluid of the inner ear. Since these are tiny calcium crystals, having a lower calcium level may cause them to turn over more frequently and thus risk their release. So a misplaced otoconia is what causes BPPV, as the other fluid now containing otoconia moves for a longer period of time because it's now it's more dense, it has more inertia, and this is what produces the vertigo sensation after movement. Anecdotally, some patients have found improvement of this problem with vitamin D and calcium supplementation. These authors put that to the test. This was a multi-center randomized trial that enrolled 1,050 patients with BPPV who all had canalith repositioning maneuvers. About half of them went on to receive vitamin D and calcium supplementation at 400 units of vitamin D and 500 milligrams of calcium twice a day for a year if their vitamin D level was lower than 20 nanograms per ml. The other half had no supplements and were actually asked not to take them and there was no placebos. For the primary outcome, which was the annual recurrence rate per person year, using intention to treat was 0.83 in the treatment arm versus 1.1 without treatment. Just two patients in the treatment arm developed hypercalcemia and had to stop the supplements. Now, there's a few problems with this study. It was only retrospectively registered at clinicaltrials.gov due to a translation delay from Korean to English. And at this time, they also changed the primary outcome for proportion of patients with reoccurrence to the absolute number of reoccurrences per patient. Their original primary outcome, proportion of patients with reoccurrence, was lower in the treatment group as well at 37.8% versus 46% in the non-treatment group. And so that gives a number needed to treat of about 11 There are also some issues with follow-up. Those numbers could have been better, but I think a bigger limitation might be realistically checking and rechecking vitamin D and calcium levels in these patients. Now, before I wrap up with a spoonful, the journal feed would really like to thank the folks over at the number needed to treat team who caught our mistake, as well as the original author's confusing reporting of a number needed to treat of 3.7 for the new primary outcome, which was an absolute risk difference and thus is a continuous variable which is inappropriate to use to calculate a number needed to treat. So again, a shout out to the number needed to treat team for upholding a high scientific standard. The journal feed always welcomes any and all legitimate corrections, and we appreciate hearing from you. So, in a spoonful, supplementation of vitamin D and calcium after cannolith repositioning maneuvers reduced the episodes of BPPV per year in adult patients. And on to the second article, which was titled Using Lights and Sirens for Emergency Ambulance Response. How often are potentially life-saving interventions performed? Out of the Journal of Pre-Hospital Emergency Care. Flashing lights might be pretty, especially when they're climbing up in your rearview mirror as they radiate from an approaching ambulance. But lights and siren use has been associated with an increased risk of crashes. What it's meant to do is to reduce transport time, which it might also do by about 1.5 minutes in urban settings and 3.6 minutes in rural settings. Now that's not a lot of time, but in some cases those minutes could be precious minutes. So here we have a paper that endeavored to analyze the appropriateness of lights and sirens by looking at how often a life-saving intervention was performed after the use of lights and sirens traffic. This was a retrospective look at a national EMS electronic health record database that included nearly 9 million 911 calls in 2018. Most of these cases, about 86% used lights and sirens. Now then, if we are very liberally defining what a potential life-saving intervention might consist of, in this case, they were including medications, critical hospital notifications, semi or stroke alerts, things of that nature, Then these were done in only 6.9% of calls. Then the authors checked to see if lights and sirens had reduced the number of potentially life-saving interventions, but actually found the opposite on sensitivity analysis. As response times increased, the rates of life-saving interventions actually decreased. So rolling out the flashy red carpet didn't seem to get patients to the hospital faster and thus medicate their use. So as with all things, it's just a risk versus benefit. If lights and sirens make transport quicker, then it could be useful, but maybe we have to be more selective. So in a spoonful, most 911 calls involve the use of lights and sirens. But only a small proportion did a potentially life-saving intervention for the patient. This suggests that a more conservative approach might be safer. And after that, we have the third article, which was titled, Improved Survival to Hospital Discharge in Pediatric Inpatient Cardiac Arrest, Using 2 Joules per Kilogram as the First Defibrillation Dose, for initial pulseless ventricular arrhythmia out of the Journal of Resuscitation. For kiddos in need of shocking, that is those with ventricular fibrillation or pulseless ventricular tachycardia, Powell recommends a starting dose of two to four joules per kg, and also mentions that it's reasonable to repeat a shock at four joules per kg if they're refractory. Now, if we look across the pond at the European Resuscitation Council, they recommend starting at a dose of four joules per kg. So there's quite a bit of variability between the recommendations. Four is twice what two is, so that's a fairly big difference. But what if we went a little bit higher or a little bit lower? This was a retrospective look at the American Heart Association database, which included 301 children of 12 years old or less who had an in-hospital arrest. The average age was three years old. Most of them were in the PICU, had respiratory difficulty, hypotension, and were intubated. After adjusting for confounders, they found that survival to discharge was worse when the defibrillation dose was outside the range of 1.7 to 2.5 joules per kg. It'll require further study, but it seemed to be that patients with the higher dose actually did worse than those with the lower dose. For patients less than 18 years old with ventricular fibrillation, doses above 2.5 joules per kg, there was an association with a lower survival to discharge, but we can't really comment on the neurological status data, unfortunately. So well, of course, if you can't change your shocking dose, then it's probably better to shock rather than not shock at all. But in a hospital, we can be more precise and shoot for better outcomes. In a spoonful for children with ventricular fibrillation or pulseless ventricular tachycardia, the defibrillation dose of two joules per kg was associated with the highest survival to discharge, and doses outside the range of 1.7 to 2.5 had lower survival. After that, we have the fourth article titled, Point of Care Ultrasound to Assess Gastric Content in Pediatric Emergency Department Procedural Sedation Patients, out of the Journal of Pediatric Emergency Care. Not unusually, we often expect pediatric patients to be NPO for procedural sedation and analgesia to reduce the chance of aspirating gastric contents. But just how well is this working anyways? Since no one likes a grumpy, unfit kid after all. Uh, That being said though, a lot of kids aren't hungry when they're sick. So to get a look at how empty everybody's stomach might be, we turn to our great old friend, POCUS, to assess risk categories based on previously established gastric volume cutoff of 1.25 milliliters per kg. Now, before you panic, no one is advocating for actually doing this to see if we can actually sedate our patients, but it's to see if being NPO for the recommended amount of time actually results in an empty stomach. So this is a prospective study on the use of gastric pocus on pediatric patients over six months undergoing procedural sedation and analgesia in the emergency department. Of the 93 patients that were included with a mean age of 6.5 years, 79% were considered high risk based on stomach content volumes despite having fasted for 6.25 hours. Now, if we go by the ASA standards of fasting, that is more than eight hours without solids and more than two hours without liquids, then there were still 68% of patients who were high risk. Even in 17 patients who had repeat exams leading up to the procedure, there was no change in risk status. So fasting time kind of makes for a weak to moderate predictor of risk category, but none of the patients in this study actually had aspiration events. Seems like fasting times aren't a good way of thinking about how empty a child's stomach might be, so perhaps avoid planning around this. Instead, think more on the patient's risk factors, the urgency of the procedure, and the sedation technique, instead of thinking about when the last time the kid ate. In a spoonful, in a single center study of pediatric patients, most underwent procedural sedation and analgesia with high risk stomach content by ultrasound, despite having fasted. And finally, the last article titled, A Shifting Paradigm, The Role of Focused Cardiac Ultrasound in Bedside Patient Assessment, another journal of chest. Man, I've said it on here before, but ultrasound really is the future, you know? I recently heard of a friend of mine who bought one of those pocket ultrasounds that you can hook up to your phone. It's just incredible. Everything's getting smaller and smaller. What a world. Anyways, Let's take yet another step down the pocus rabbit hole and have a look at focus. Focus being short for focused cardiac ultrasound. When compared to clinical assessment alone, focus improved diagnostic accuracy, regardless of training level for both inpatients and outpatients. Honestly, I could stop right there. I'm pretty happy with that, but let's dig a little bit further into the details. So when trying to diagnose left ventricular dysfunction compared with just using a history and physical exam, FOCUS offered a much higher sensitivity at 84% compared with just 43% on the traditional route. And even the specificity got a bump up from 81% up to 89%. Similar can be said about valvular disease with FOCUS increasing sensitivity to 71% from a measly 46. Now, the data on pericardial effusions is very promising, with emergency physicians reaching the high 90s for sensitivity and specificity. And even outside the emergency department, sensitivities range from 78 to 100%. And what about right ventricular dysfunction? Now, here we have to be selective. It should not be used to rule out PE in all comers. When it was most useful was in helping for decision making with hemodynamically unstable patients. Here, the European Society of Cardiology notes that the absence of right ventricular dilation or dysfunction in hemodynamically unstable patients essentially excludes a pulmonary embolism. So what it really boils down to is that a focused cardiac ultrasound kind of matters. A review of three prospective observational studies of more than 400 patients found that focus changed management in 37 to 51% of cases. Of course, the caveat for all things ultrasound is that it's very operator-skill-dependent. But as these things become cheaper, more available, and more utilized, then the skill of everyone will be improving in the coming years. So in a spoonful, focused cardiac ultrasound enhance the diagnostic ability for multiple cardiac parameters at the bedside. And that's it for everything. How about we do a quick rapid review just to cover everything that we learned today. First, once you've gone through the motions to treat BPPV, Supplementation with vitamin D and calcium might be useful to stave off further events. Next, bright flashy lights and sirens might help but won't always. A stingier use of these tools might be safer for our patients. After that, before yelling CLEAR to shock your hospital pediatric patients, check the dose. Ideal dosing may be 2 joules per kg and outside the range of 1.7 to 2.5 seems to have worse outcomes. Next from the fourth article, boy, kids can be difficult, can't they? Even making them fast often won't empty their stomachs for a procedure, as seen by ultrasound. And lastly, there's always room for more POCUS, so make way for FOCUS and improve your cardiac exam. And that's all for this week, everybody. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, Or if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsfeed and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.